But first, a few quick announcements. Uh, the Sacred Tour to Turkey is in place for next May, and the cost will be around $3,200 for two weeks, uh, exploring the many places um, and sacred sites once called Anatolia, or Land of the Nourishing Mothers. I'll be co-leading the tour with one of the foremost American authorities on Artemis of Ephesus, archaeologist and religion scholar Dr. James Rietfeld. We're taking only about 20 men and women on the journey, so the experience will be very personal as we go to different sacred sites of goddess every day, often where tourists rarely tread. So we have very private time at the sacred sites to absorb the energy and essence and uh, there are many, too, let me tell you, dedicated to Cabelli, Isis, Mary, Aphrodite, Artemis, Kubaba, just to name a few. And the Anatolian Museum is not to be missed. But neither is the sacred shopping, rituals at the sites, experiencing the whirling dervishes and Turkish baths. This will be a journey of a lifetime. It's not cheap, I know, but it's well worth it. And one good thing is Turkey is not yet on the euro, so once there your money stretches rather nicely. And the food is terrific, so start saving now. Let me hear from you if you think you want to know more or if you want to come. Or keep an eye on my website, KarenTate.com. Watch the page for Sacred Tours. A website link will be up soon. And speaking of taking a, sub, uh, a uh, summer pilgrimage, if you want to do something closer to home uh, or not, uh, you can actually use uh, my book, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and do your own self-driven goddess tour around the United States or abroad. Uh, not only can you travel to sacred sites of the Divine Feminine up and down the West Coast, but you can find other U.S. and international destinations as well. Uh, I know there's nothing like it between two cover covers. Um, I've had prestigious endorsements, and it's sold in all the usual places. Amazon, museum bookstores uh, can be ordered from your local bookseller. Or if you want a signed copy from me, just go to KarenTate.com and go to my bookstore page. And while you're there, check out some of the endorsements for the book. I think you'll probably be impressed. And uh, if you're not uh, up to the hassle of a pilgrimage and want to read some experiences of uh, sacred uh, journeys uh, from your armchair without boots on the ground as we speak, uh, my second book, Walking an Ancient Path, has chapters detailing esoteric and exoteric experiences uh, as I traveled to, to Egypt, Turkey, Ireland, Italy, and many other sacred destinations, sometimes with... Um, my hubby, Roy, of 30 years, and sometimes uh, with a group or leading a group. And uh, next big news is the big free fun book launch party, uh, birthing the fourth book, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, uh, it's, and, which is an anthology of guests from this very show. It is September 27th. Uh, that is right around the corner from 7 to 10 at the Goddess Temple. Uh, we'll have uh, special guests, uh, contributors to the anthology, sharing their wisdom. Uh, we'll have the incredibly talented Miranda Rondeau performing a piece in tribute to Lane Redmond. We'll have singer-songwriter Jackie Clark, uh, who will lift us up with her beautiful voice. Rowan Storm, internationally known drum circle facilitator, will engage the audience. And two sacred dancers, Maria Kelly Lovetti and Brenda McCoy, uh, who will perform the Dance of the Three Veils. 
Uh, books will be available at a deep discount, and uh, you can have all the contributors uh, sign your copy, uh, truly taking home a real collector's item. And we'll also have wonderful raffle items. If you were at the book launch party, party in April, folks were gaga over the raffle items and free book table. So don't miss it. If you're within driving distance, please come as we come together and launch this new book um, to our evening's theme, which is Celebrating Partnership. Yes, Celebrating Partnership. Uh, And if you're interested, you can pre-order Voices of the Sacred Feminine at a discount now on Amazon, or I have extra copies. You can get one from me if uh, you don't want to wait till they start mailing them out in November or December. Okay, uh, without further delay, uh, let me once again introduce you to Patricia and Mark by way of their bio, and I thank them both for their patience during all my announcements. Uh, Mark Michaels and Patricia Johnson are a devoted married couple. They have been creative collaborators, teaching and writing about sexuality and Tantra together since 1999. Michaels and Johnson are the authors of Partners in Passion, Great Sex Made Simple, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment, and The Essence of Tantric Sexuality. Their books have garnered numerous awards, independent publishing, uh, Forward Reviews, and USA uh, Book News Best Books, among others. They are also the creators of the meditation CD set, uh, Ananda Nidra Blissful Sleep. Uh, to support the Pleasure Positive community in New York, they co-founded Pleasure Salon in 2007, and their website is michaelsandjohnson.com. You know, you guys, you remind me, I've been watching the HBO special, I think it's HBO, uh, Masters and Johnson. <laughs> Has anybody said that to you yet? <laughs> we, I haven't seen it yet. But, no, yeah. the show, we haven't seen the show, but yeah. actually we've, somebody said, in a blurb for, I think it was our first, first book. book, yeah. Michaels and Johnson are Masters and Johnson for the 21st century. So we've kind of, you know, liked that. And, and so Michaels and Johnson has become kind of a, a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's most definitely a compliment. <laughs> you know, especially, I mean, look, you know, I don't know how much creative license they took, uh, for the, for the show, you know, to tell about that collaboration between Masters and Johnson, but boy, they struggled to bring, um, you know, what they learned about uh, uh, sexuality to the world. Um, there was this great scene where they actually hired somebody to uh, build, create. I, I, I'm not sure what word to use. Um, um, they they made a transparent uh, vibrator that had a camera in it so that when a woman actually used it um, internally, they could watch the muscles, uh, you know, inside her, uh, you know, what, what, they, what happened during an orgasm. And it was so funny because he thought he had this wonderful uh, you know, new, uh, you know, breaking uh, information that he was going to share with all his colleagues, and they were just going to be dumbfounded with his accomplishment. And you know, they, you know, that time period, uh, they were they were such sticks in the mud. They all just walked out on his presentation. So I guess we've come a long way. <laughs> yes, thank goodness, thank goodness. But in some ways, we we still have a long way. To come, especially in the realm of female sexuality, for sure. You know, I, I think so, too. Uh, you know, I really do when, you know, we uh, still have, 
men telling women if they can have contraception, men telling women, uh, you know, if they can have abortions, you know, men telling women uh, that if they enjoy sex that somehow that's not okay, but men can. I mean, there's still so many um, taboos to overcome and conservative ideas and and shame. Um, do you get letters from your readers about anything like this? Yeah, I mean, we get comments uh, during our lectures. We get emails, yes, and people are struggling with with these kind of topics, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine, you know. Uh, I, I, I imagine that there's still people out there that have sex for the first time on their wedding night, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just such a shame, you know, because it, it feels like to me, um, you know, sexuality is a gift, and... Um, you know, we have been denied it, you know, the pleasure of it for way too long. I mean, so many people carry so much baggage about it. And, um, you know, we're, we're about uh, breaking taboos and finding new normals here. So I'm, I'm glad you're both here on the show um, talking about it. Um, so, so let's start with um, what, is, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about what uh, Tantra really is? Mm-hmm. Oh, there are so many, and and you know, I, I mean, the, the 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 definition of tantra is actually something that's that's contested in academic circles, um, and what qualifies as being tantra and what doesn't is is quite you know is, is disputed quite a bit. But I think the the thing that we see a great deal of is the the kind of the idea that that tantra is exclusively about sex, or that it's a healing modality. Um, or uh, that the tantra is uh, is a form of sex work. We've we've this is something that's happening quite a lot these days. You and, you also find that um, sometimes the history of tantra exaggerated to the point where it becomes uh, you know older than what it's actually documented to be or channeled teachings, which it's a very real tradition with real teachers and real written trans or um teaching scripts so so uh, all right so let let me just ask this question again and and let me preface it by saying please feel free during the course of our conversation if i ask you something that really isn't under the umbrella of tantra that you correct me because i think that will help um, me understand, you know, exactly what it is, you know, as well um, as my listeners. So, so is Tantra, um, you know, t- is sexuality, or is it that just part of it? It's really just part of it. And it, Tantra is a very diverse and uh, complicated tradition that, that originated in India, um, Tibetan Buddhism is a form of tantric practice, and so there are plenty of people who, who do tantric practices who are, in fact, celibate. But um, there is, in the tantric tradition, a sexual ritual. And there's also a long history of, of goddess worship in the, in the tantric tradition. It's one of the, you know, one of the living goddess traditions that's, that's still with us today. And uh, so, so there is a sexual component to tantra, but sex is really a very small component of the of the entire tradition. 
Okay, and here I had lined up all of these sex questions for you, <laughs> and, um, and and so we'll probably ask a, a few less of those, but I would imagine in doing the uh, the research for the book, you must have had to research sexuality as well, right? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, we, we've studied a lot about sexuality and um, have actually uh, participated in some of the Rutgers studies uh, mapping out the female brain and orgasm and how it lights, you know, what, what centers of the brain are activated during orgasm. So we're very much, I, I guess, not far away from Masters and Johnson in that, I guess. <laughs> True. I, you know, I was just thinking that uh, because uh, that sounded so much like what I just saw them doing on TV last night. <laughs> yeah, we actually um, did the first partner, probably, the first that we know of, partner-stimulated uh, orgasm in an fMRI machine. Um, wow. <laughs> now, wait, wait, I, we were wait, not wait, both wait, in the machine at the time. Did, did one, one. I was standing outside. Um, and that was a very interesting and, and challenging experience because... Um, so, wait, wait, but back up a second, Michael. You did that or they did that? They did. They did. Our friend uh, Nan Wise is just finished her doctorate um, dissertation on the topic, and we par- were subjects, and we helped her, you know. So Patricia was in the machine, and I was standing outside and, and stimulating her with, with, wow. with my hand. Wow. So. And so <laughs> what can you tell us that the average that would be of interest to the average person what happens in the in the in the female brain when she is having that orgasmic pleasure? You know what the most important take home I think for everybody is that when you imagine pleasure your brain lights up in the same way as when you're actually receiving the physical stimulation. And this is so valuable. Um, The study was partially funded by the Christopher Reeves Foundation. So they were studying some people with uh, complete spinal injuries, and they found that the imagination is very, very important in orgasmic response and also that uh, orgasm begins in the brain. So I think this is huge for everyone to think about. Well, well, you think about it. You know, uh, you know, people can have orgasms in their sleep, and you know, they're not, um, you know, they're they're not in in having sex while they're asleep. So that makes perfect sense, um, I, I guess, to me that uh, that so we could really. Not even we we could pleasure ourselves and not even have a partner is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and you can um, you know work with your thoughts to open up more pleasures, you know, or just to keep that erotic current alive and you know and going. And and this is I can tie this back into tantra in a, in a very concrete way. In in the tantric tradition, a lot of the practices, whether they're sexual or non-sexual, really involve becoming what we like to say becoming facile with your awareness and exploring and working with your consciousness with intentionality and what what this research is showing about about the human sexual response is that the more conscious you are and the more intentional you are with your own sexuality the the more expansive it can become Hmm. so um so let me ask you um and 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 I hope I'm not throwing you a real curve here, but, you know, one of the things that we would all love to know, you know, get a time machine and go back, is what we think really might have happened 
and like the the they you know called them the temples of sacred prostitution you know the Aphrodite temples and you know we've often heard that you know it was it was through union with a woman that um, you could reach the divine. Um, do you think that you know either what they might have been doing in the temples or that idea that through sex you could know God, goddess? Does any of that you think have um, you know have any relationship to tantra whatsoever? The the temple um, prostitution aspect, as far as uh, any of the research that we've done, is it's kind of a parallel thing, and it still it's exists. It's the same culture. Yeah, and it still exists in India. But um, there, as far as we can tell, within the tantric tradition itself, it's not really a component. What is true in, in the origins of tantra is is very much what you're talking about. The earliest rituals, which probably are, were in around the the, the tradition probably sort of gelled in about the 4th or 5th century. And those early rituals were uh, involved spirit possession by the, the female practitioners who would transmit the power that they got in the possession to the male practitioners through sex. And so the women were the initiators of the men and the transmitters of, of the, the divine powers. So, you know, it, it does have very much that kind of, component to it in origin and uh, and you know and, and not to be you know crass here or anything but i find this really interesting and and you know may it and it feels like it's it this is kind of maybe you know a taboo subject um even today but when i was i was researching some of the shakti temples and some of the practices that um, you know they would do in the in the temples, especially I think in southern India. As I was researching sacred places of goddess, you know they talked about actually using some of the vaginal fluids that would be secreted during orgasm, collecting it and using it. I'm not sure for what. Um, did did you run across any of that? You know. Yeah, about- absolutely. Yeah, we um, we describe. Uh, the ritual in uh, the essence of tantric sexuality in which is our our first and most esoteric book but yeah absolutely in these early rituals it was actually the um, it wasn't just the vaginal fluid it would be a combination of vaginal fluid and male ejaculate and and often menstrual blood as well and the the participants would consume these combined fluids as as a sacrament so these are these are some of the most powerful fluids of the body, and they have what's called numinosity. They've got a quality that is like very divine energy. Divine energy. I mean, this is why we can see a, a pool of red water or red colored anything and not feel it, but if we see blood, you know, it's a visceral reaction. So that's a great example. It's it's innate knowledge of the power of these fluids. And in fact, I mean, you know, to be kind of crude and contemporary about it, but one of the reasons that, you know, the cum shot is such a big deal in porn, it's not just proving that the guy has actually had an orgasm. It, it is this, this deep human idea that these fluids have power in them. And however, you know, crudely it may be expressed and, and shown in, in contemporary films, there's still that kernel of, of, of that, sense of spiritual power right 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 
Okay, and and you know, forgive me, maybe I'm getting too graphic here, but I mean, is this a is this a ritual one on one where you know, or is this a group ritual that maybe then that fluid is shared among you know it is shared among those gathered? I, I guess I'm just trying to get the context for you know how it's collected and 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 then disseminated. <laughs> nice choice of words there. Um, I, I, in modern day, um, I, I wouldn't advise sharing um, right. <laughs> fluids. Um, but good point. Martin, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what what we encourage people to do if if they're interested in in doing this kind of ritual activity, uh, you know, we we do need to be concerned about safer sex. So using symbolic substances to substitute for the actual fluids is, is one way to work with that in a, in a ritualized setting. Um, the rituals were typically done in, in a group uh, format. Uh, what we've learned is really that the, 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 the couples participating with one another would share their fluids. Um, not the group. Not the not, group as Not a to whole. my knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, and um, so you know, let's let's just finish this stuff off, and then we'll get into the more spiritual side of it. Um, is there really such a thing as the G spot to help achieve orgasm? Now, I know you've already established that you can do it, you know, just using your imagination. But you know, we hear so much about it. Is it real? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still disputed in the scientific community. I mean, we were just at a lecture earlier this year, and um, they were talking about it. And the, um, I think the, they ha- science scientists have agreed that the G spot is, is now officially named the female prostate because it does produce prosthetic fluids. It has its analogous um, uh, organ to the prostate, but. Um, the the uh, where the fluid comes from is very very um, it's still contested. hardly contested yeah. yeah um and how much i mean one of the big the big debate is whether uh women who who ejaculate copiously are producing urine or not um and that's still that's still d- debated among scientists even though well, they've taken it and anal- analyzed right what I mean, it should be easy enough to analyze it, right? The, I mean, collect the fluid and 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 see what it's, you know, Ruth see Mato. what it's compo- composed of. And yeah, in the um, the scientist we heard lecture, she said it's watered down urine, and um, didn't have any explanation as to how that watered down process happens and where it was stored and all of that. Or why people who who do have this type of response can then, you know, immediately afterwards go to the bathroom and urinate. So hmm. it it's a very uh, but it's still, so it's still it's still an issue. But even with the stuff that they're saying is watered down urine, they are finding. Um, some quantity of prostatic fluid in it, and a lot less urea than you would typically find in urine, hence the watered-down thing. Yeah. 
But um, I think uh, if, if any of your listeners are having trouble finding this, this area, it's not a spot, so it's an area, it may be because they're not sufficiently aroused before they start exploring that area. And if that's the case, then you're, you're pressing up against your pubic bone, and that is not a comfortable feeling. So you need to be aroused before you start exploring. So without, without having the benefit of a diagram, can you tell us where it is? Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, basically if you're stimulating uh, someone else or stimulating yourself, you want to build up, as Patricia was saying, a pretty high level of arousal. And then you would insert a, a finger or two, depending on the individual. Uh, and it's, it's kind of at the front, um, the front wall of, of the vagina, like behind the clitoris. Ah, so okay. you would press toward the, like, like you're pressing toward your own belly button. And sometimes it's easier to find while squatting rather than laying down. If you're stimulating yourself, it's just a little more ergonomic that, that way. Okay. So. okay. And so, so the, you what know, you do is you kind of do – I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Um, so you, you want to use a lot of lube, and when you put, put a finger or fingers inside, feel around for an area of, of slightly rougher raised tissue. As Patricia said before, it's not a spot. It's more like a region. And when you find that, um, you stimulate it using a come-hither gesture with your finger. Um, and it's going to vary a great deal from person to person and, and also depending on where in, in a woman's cycle she is, how much pressure, how sensitive that, that area will be. So it's really important to have good communication and feedback um, if you're working with, with somebody else um, and to be, you know, to explore, if you're, if you're self-pleasuring, to explore different types of, of stimulation and pressure. Right, right, right. Well, you're, you know, you're making me think of the book Fifty Shades of Grey. I actually read through the trilogy, and they don't call it what they don't call it stimulating the G spot, but what you just described, they actually do in uh, one of their encounters. So, um, anyway, it, you know, if, if anyone's reading Fifty Shades of Grey, they can um, they can get it there. <laughs> <as well. laughs> Well, and, and, you know, honestly, you know, what, what you're describing, you have to be really comfortable with your partner, you know, which, which brings the, the intimacy thing back to this. Um, you know, to have the kind of experiences I'm imagining you're talking about, um, you know, this isn't, you know, you know, this isn't one night stands. You know, this is, you know, you have to you have to get used to one another and be comfortable. Um, you know, talking about maybe the thing that's the hardest in the world for people to talk about, right? Yeah, I'm. I guess one one of the things we advise people to do is to to speak about sexuality not while you're having sex, but you know, in other contexts. And, and speak about it often and in a light-hearted um, light, uh, manner so it's not serious and intense. And so, Heavy. Yeah. So much pressure. Yeah. So much pressure. Um, well, you know, and, and I, you know we, we started talking about the idea of back in the Victorian age of, um, you know, women, uh, you know, who were diagnosed with hysteria. And I 
and and I guess I'm trying to connect the dots with the with the intimacy idea, um, and and even having watched. Uh, you know, Masters and Johnson last night, and, you know, and this is happening in the 50s and 60s, and, you know, the husband and wife are still in separate beds, and, you know, they don't seem like they, you know, even perform oral sex on one another, and I'm thinking back to these poor women in the Victorian age. I mean, they literally had to go to the doctor to achieve an orgasm, uh, and not that that's what they were going there for, though, I wouldn't imagine, unless it was kind of a nod, nod, wink, wink thing after, you know, they figured out what was going on. I mean, can you kind of give some context for that? Um, I mean, sort of the, you know, the where we were and how far we've come, maybe, uh, because it seems like even, you know, we've maybe come a long way, or at least some people have. Well, with the Victorian era, I think they, the doctors certainly knew very well what they were doing. They, they, they may have called it something else. They, they called it the hysterical paroxysm. But, uh, I, you know, they, they knew that, there was a, that this was sexual stimulation of some sort. They had to have known that. But what happened in the Victorian era that's, that's actually very interesting and, and relevant to the conversation more broadly is that prior to – the modern period and especially the Victorian era, women were thought of as being um, basically sexually insatiable and the the whole kind of temptress model. And men were thought of as being naturally chaste and only, uh, generally speaking in Europe, only, you know, losing that natural chastity because women led them astray. (laughs) So the Victorian era comes along and, and, that all changes, and all of a sudden, women are you know are 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 naturally just non-sexual beings. Their their domestic duties are the most important thing, and and all of a sudden, they're, they're having hysteria because they're not really getting any. They've been so desexualized. <laughs> if you think about it, too, I mean, it's working with some very important hormones of the body. Um, when you you go through arousal, you you release dopamine and uh, norepinephrine. norepinephrine, and th- this is very important for your sense of well-being and your um, uh, you know connection by vitality. And then with the orgasm comes a release of prolactin and oxytocin. Both all these hormones are very important, and I I would say, uh, I don't know, I I can't wait till they do the study where they you know double uh, test people who are suffering from mild depression and just have them have an orgasm a day and see how well they fare in a month or two because it's just working with the hormones of the body and this makes sense that it probably was very helpful treatment for for a lot of people. yeah, orgasms are, you know, they're, they they leave you relaxed, they leave you feeling good. and They help you sleep, they, yeah, you know. Well, I mean, you know, this might sound crazy, but I, don't, I, I, I guess I really don't think it is or else I wouldn't say it. Um, you know, I, I think about the wars in the Middle East and, you know, and I think about how um, repressed they seem to be sexually. I mean, after all, women even have to hide their bodies in burqas. You know, somehow, look, I, I, maybe you'll tell me I'm totally wrong, and that's okay. Maybe they're having wild sex when that burqa comes off. 
But I just get the idea that they're so sexually repressed. Maybe a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, war anywhere, I guess, you know. Because if people are satiated and feel loved and, you know, they're relaxed, I don't think they're so likely to go um, bomb somebody or throw on a, a... you know, uh, explosives, you know, put explosives on their body and go kill people. You know, that, that's interesting. I, I bet I, it, it makes sense to me. Um, I think whenever you suppress any, any part of a population, when you're dealing with a population that oppresses, I guess, then you're, you're really triggering a potential for violence to happen. So it's not necessarily just females or sexuality. It can happen in many different ways. But I'm sure someone has done studies on this mark i'm, yeah, I'm not aware was... of studies but I, I i do think that if you know if you look at human history and you look at what's done especially with young men uh as you know as societies get built and we've moved out we move from a, a more tribal kind of way of living into a more urbanized one you have the rise of institutional religions and monastic traditions and you have standing armies and between those two things you're channeling all of this this energy of of young men into either uh, a celibate contemplative kind of lifestyle which is also highly regimented or you're channeling it into into warfare yeah 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 and it it really makes you wonder um, how society would be different if we had no sexual taboos uh, from the beginning, you know, and sex was just normal and people did it and uh, it would it would be maybe as, as uh, you know, you know, nothing, you know, none of this baggage attached to it like, um, you know, it, it would be like changing your clothes, drinking water. It would just be uh, a natural thing that was done instead of this, um, I, I, I'm struggling for the words, but you know all of all of this baggage that's attached to it or not. You know the shame. The uh, I, I mean, I can imagine there's there's you know people who get you know who get married and know nothing about sex whatsoever, and maybe go their entire life like that. You know, and and really yeah. end up just having you know horrible sex their their entire life and. You know that has to affect their emotional well-being and their happiness. They're, right, absolutely, and I mean there are actually um, a percentage of marriages that never get consummated. They, the, the couples just can't ever figure that out, that aspect of their life together. So um, it's very real. I don't, and I don't know what percentage continue <laughs> and do manage to have sex, but and and still not know much about it. It's probably quite a bit. <laughs> so. So um so so let's get into the you know in into the more emotional you know part of it. Um um you talk about infatuation is not love. Um why don't you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean I think that's one of the huge problems that that people have and I think it's in, it actually is kind of increasing in our in our culture these days is that they're they confuse the intensity that they feel when they're first falling in love uh, with, with real love. And the movies and popular culture and everything really fuels this idea 
um, that, you know, you feel this intense connection with another person and they must be the one for you. The truth is you're, when, when you're in that state, you're actually in an altered state of consciousness because your, your whole system is being flooded with, with the hormones that Patricia was talking about before, and you're really on a kind of high. And that's not sustainable. It's six months average, two years max, and that will dissipate. And then, yeah, I think physically your own body can't sustain it. But unfortunately people feel that um, sort of high start to wane, and then they look at their partners and they think, oh, well, you're obviously not the one or not my soulmate. And then they discard all that goodwill that they've put into being together and search for that other, the next high, which is so elusive. Um, so, well, I, I, that was a great way to say it, so elusive. Um, so do you think people have unrealistic expectations about what being together on a long-term basis really is? Or do you think oh, absolutely. So, or, or, or so few people really um, know what love is? They just go from, you know, infatuation to infatuation to infatuation. Yeah, and they, I don't. I think they they want to experience love, but they don't realize that love is a practice and a skill set. It's it's something that it you know you do daily. You act loving. It's not you fall in love and it's done. I think um, people often get very passive in their you know in sort of think only about their needs and getting feeling fulfilled and they don't think of the relational aspects of of love and again this is you know it's so deep in our culture because we have just all of these movies and books and romantic comedies on television and on and on and on that tell people and fairy tales as well that tell people first of all that there's there's a soulmate. There's one person out there who's the one for you, and and then when you meet that person, you should you know everything will just kind of you might hit, you might hit an obstacle or two you know um, and have a fight and not talk for a couple of days. But basically, things are going to take care of themselves and you will live happily ever after. And that's just it's nonsense. Right. Um, right. And and the the what it does is it keeps people longing for this this type of relationship that, that doesn't really exist, that can't exist. And well, so then you know, they look at what I, they I, actually have, and they're, and they're disappointed in it. Well, and, yeah. and I think, too, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is, I mean, something I've, I've thought myself for a really long time is, you know, some of the most important facets of our life we really don't know very much about. You know, we don't know very much about um, sex. We don't know very much about really what it means to be in love or to be intimate. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? And I guess, you know, I always go back to blaming it on religion. You know, um, and maybe I shouldn't put blame everything on religion, uh, but, I, I, it, it, but I, it feels like to me that that, um, you know, is a real culprit uh, that that prevents people from, um, you know, really a- achieving their fullest the fullest potential of their life. I would I would say religion is part of it, but I, I think um, I think there are other elements as well that are that are more modern and and more culturally determined, and, and they have to do with with capitalism really, and and the rise of of uh, 
industrial modernity. Um, you know, 300 years ago, marriages were not seen as being something that you did for love. Marriages were seen as being uh, primarily a business arrangement. Uh, if you were rich, a marriage was all about joining properties together. And if you were not rich, marriage typically would be about finding someone who is a suitable person for you to be with who would share in the responsibilities of, of living together. And that actually could, could create more intimacy than, than chasing after love all the time. Uh, similarly, with, with, uh, with masturbation, um, there's a great book called, I think it's called The Solitary Vice by Thomas LeCur, who's a historian of sex. And his thesis, and he, I think he makes a really strong case for this, is that the taboo against masturbation was not that big a deal in, in the medieval church. Masturbation became a major taboo in the 17th and 18th centuries, and even more so in the 19th. And the, the reason it was such a taboo at that time was because there was an idea that it was a waste of energy. It would take people away from being productive members of society. So we have all kinds of stuff that, that we've internalized, and religion is a piece of it, but, but there's way, way more than just religion involved. Okay, okay. And so um, and maybe this is too obvious, but, but maybe it's not. Um, how, do you, how do you define intimacy? How does somebody know when they have it? Oh, I, I, love, I love the question, actually, and I think it's really a good one to think about. Um, I don't think that intimacy happens um, initially through verbalizing, by talking. I think if you're not feeling connected, that intimacy will not happen. If you can't talk your way into feeling love or being, feeling intimate, I think a majority of intimacy happens in silence and through nonverbal communication. Like and what? I would say intimacy is like walking a tightrope. It's really a balancing act. Uh, it's, it's balancing that sense of connectedness with the person you're with and also maintaining your own uh, inner integrity and, and your own awareness that you, you are separate as well as connected. Would you say that, um, say, people who are married a long time, you know, maybe they're married 30, 40 years, and you see these couples who, um, you know, maybe they still can have sex, you know, but but they, they still just have this spark about them that, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm, where, where I'm going with this is it feels like to me my guess would be they must have really good intimacy because, you know, sometimes, you know, men reach a point where, you know, sex, you know, well, yeah, they have Viagra now, but, you know, sex is a little bit harder as you get older, all your physical limitations, and granted, there's all sorts of different ways to have sex, but um, do you do you think maybe intimacy comes um, to people who have been married a long time, or or does that not really matter? I don't know if I mean I think time and you know having the time to build trust and goodwill also contributes but um you can see I mean just being together for 40 years you can I mean see couples that aren't intimate at all and right, unaware true. of one another right um 
I think go the opposite, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and there are people who seem to be held together more by spite than anything else, too. But, <laughs> I mean, I think that, that to add to your question or to add another answer to your question about intimacy, uh, it's like love. It's a practice. It's not a state. And it's something that if you're in a relationship with someone, you make a priority and you do things to establish to maintain, to restore your connection with one another. And you do that on, a, on an ongoing basis. It takes uh, we, don't like the, we don't like work on the relationship as a, as a, as a suggestion. We, we much prefer tend to it or nurture it. And that's yeah, how intimacy is built. Yeah, yeah, because the word, the word work is not the best choice of words. Um, so falling in love, you say, uh, is an experience you can consciously recreate on a daily basis. Um, I think that's what you're talking about, this nurturing. Um, do you have some examples, you know, for listeners of, of things that they can do to nurture that feeling? Yeah, we're actually doing one right now. <laughs> <laughs> And that that is so simple. Um, it's just gaze into your beloved's eyes and and make that a daily practice. Do it for three to three minutes in silence, and it's it's really one of the most profound, uh, intimate practices you can do. And it it really it's not it's not something where you're going to verbalize. You're not going to go into a place where you're expressing appreciation or talking about your feelings. You really are just creating this nonverbal connection and taking the time to, to gaze. And what happens when you do that is that you start to sync up physiologically and emotionally, and you get into this. It, it's kind of a meditation, and you get into this nonverbal state, which is really what you did when you were falling in love. Even if you were talking a lot, there was an enormous amount of nonverbal and lots Stuff and lots on. of eye contact. You see young lovers, and they're just looking at each other, not speaking, and you're like, whoa, what are they up to? Um, and I, I think it's important for people to realize that there's so much information we get non-verbally. I think we overrate the verbal side and how we think through our way through life, and there's so much non-verbal information that's much more rich than you can get in a sentence. Well, in in wouldn't you know um, you know intimate and in, intimacy be you know a, a gentle touch, uh, a thoughtful gesture? I mean, would those things also count? You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Any any bid for connection, where you're you're just checking in or or just you know making one another aware that you are in a relationship right now and it's a relational. The fact that you're in the same room together has a relational aspect to it. It also yeah. involves taking, taking uh, time and expressing interest, taking, you know, allowing for listening to your partner, even though we talked about how it's important to connect non-verbally, but to really listen when you're having a conversation, to show, to demonstrate that you're truly interested um, is another way of building intimacy. Turn off the TV. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, and say, for instance, you're a person who hasn't learned to be very warm or you're with someone who, um, you know, maybe hasn't learned that warmth, you know, they're just kind of, you know, they haven't learned how to 
just do those simple things, you know, because I think it, those things come easier to some of us than than others of us. Um, a, any advice on how to cultivate it in yourself or to maybe try to bring it out of maybe someone you care about? Gosh, I think my first thought is, we, I mean, to um, to really understand your partner's style, and they may not express so so they may not express intimacy and warmth the same way you would, and but really try to figure out where they are expressing it and how, and then take those gestures in deeply, rather than try to ask your partner to um, to behave in a different way. Um, does that make sense, Mark? Yeah. Because, um, I mean, he'll, he'll say, hey, baby, I love you, and I'll go, really, why? You know? <laughs> but but it, it's, you know, usually, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what what did I just do or what triggered that? So, you know, and really take it in instead of, well, he never says why. You know, it's not, is that right? He's, like, looking at me like, what? Um, so, I tell you why all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but I, I'm, I'm just thinking, I think, Often couples run into trouble when they want uh, various styles, uh, connection styles to be the same. They want their partner to behave exactly how they like to connect and also how they resolve conflict. And they want their partner to be exactly like them. And we all have different ways we negotiate these things. Are you kind of the stereotype example of this, uh, you know, and it's very gendered and we really don't like the kind of men are this way and women are that way model, but in in broad terms, men often feel that they're being intimate if they're just in a room with their partner. And they may not they may not be talking. And women may want to have more verbal communication. And it it's it's a good idea to try and meet in the middle and realize that, you know, if one of you is is a talker and the other is just a sort of companionable type to find the balance between those two things and, and respect both styles. And that's true whether it's a male-female thing or just an individual behavioral pattern. Yeah. Yeah, or, I mean, what you hear all the time about, you know, how, you know, the guy will just kind of then roll over and go to sleep where, you know, the woman wants to, um, you know, maybe spoon or cuddle or something like that. Um, so maybe there's a, there's a compromise point there. Because he might not realize, and she doesn't want to, what you're saying is don't try to change the other person, but you have to be aware of of maybe, you know, simple little things you can maybe do to take that extra step to, you know, please your partner sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those are really... So, I mean, I think it's, just to reiterate, it's it's a two-sided or multifaceted kind of process. Yes, you know, people should strive to meet meet each other halfway or something, you know, somewhere in the middle anyhow. But also it's really important to appreciate what your partner is doing and to recognize that it that they may not be intimate in this or they may not want the same inti- the same form or expression of intimacy as you, but to appreciate that that they if they say they they feel intimate, that they they really probably mean it. Um, too often we've we've heard couples just really trash each other and not recognize and appreciate 
the the efforts that one or the other person is making to to come closer. Right, right. Um, well, the other thing that um, I, I you you believe is important, and uh, I do too. You talk about reverence. Uh, you know, being another facet of all of this. Um, you you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think reverence is the core of core of our relationship, and we see our relationship as a spiritual practice. And um, we express reverence in many different ways. Um, one classic way I like to talk about is. Uh, when I mean really looking at one another, recognizing each other as a divine being, and one of my favorite times to do that is when Mark is being a total butt. <laughs> he's <laughs> upset with me, or he's he's doing something I don't, you know. And I'm like, you know what? This is the time. Really look deep into his eyes. Really listen. Really, you know, be present. Really just try to climb in and, and understand his experience in the, of the world. And these are rich times. I mean, they're really... Um... takes a lot of self-discipline. But, um, <laughs> and I, I'm going to tie this back into to Tantra um, because it really, this, is, this is one of the ways that we feel that this ancient and foreign tradition can be adapted uh, to modern circumstances. In those ancient rituals that we were talking about, um, the partners would honor one another as embodiments of, of divine beings. Um, and sometimes actually the, the, the leader of the ritual would, would put people together who were not couples and, and would have, uh, you know, would, the partners would be chosen at random. And the reason for that is actually that in some ways it's easier to worship someone you don't know than someone you, you spend your entire life with. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> because they, they didn't like leave their laundry on the floor that morning or I forget get it, to get I get it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so what we feel is that this concept of, of honoring, of reverence, of being in service to one another that, that existed at the core of, of the ancient and still exists at the core of the tantric ritual, sexual ritual, is something that you can apply in every aspect of your life. And how much richer is it to, to really bring that, that sense of, of worship into as many of your most mundane interactions as you possibly can? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, just, um, it just adds another layer of richness to life, you know. I, I think, um, and, you know, tell me if, if you disagree. I mean, our, our contemporary existence for some people um, I don't know, it feels like, you know, all we, we live to be consumers. You know, it's such a shallow existence um, that, you know, this, this kind of stuff that you're talking about may just sound like you're from another planet, you know, to some people. <laughs> you, you, you know, honestly. I, I mean, I, 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 look, I would be willing to bet the stuff that we're talking about tonight, you know, can maybe not my listeners, but... Uh, look, I come from the Bible Belt. I remember what that used to be like. Um, you didn't talk about this kind of stuff. And, you know, life was just about other things. You know, it wasn't about your quality of life or your pleasure. Um, you know, you did your duty. And, you know, that's that's all there was. And, you know, this is a whole other dimension to to living, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and I think what we're proposing is, is, you know, it's pretty radical, and, and it, it, it's hard to break yourself off of that, that wheel of, of consumerism that we're, we're all so conditioned to just, you know, keep chasing the next thing. But mm-hmm. if, you can, if you just do a little, you know, just a little bit, you, you can loosen that some, and you can start to be more fulfilled and, and freer and more connected with your, with your partner. So do you, um, for, for my listeners who might not be feeling creative, um, do you have some exercises that, that you recommend or um, just some different ideas that, um, you know, they might try to incorporate into their lives? Well, the eye gazing is, is the foundational one, and this is something you can do also if you're with, with yourself in, in the mirror, and really to take a, just a few moments to to revere yourself that's really important too and we're we're so not conditioned to have that that kind of appreciation for ourselves and our society it feels um, awkward you know i i you know you, you're saying that and you're reminding me there's a ritual that uh that we do in the goddess community where we pass around the the mirror and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say i am a goddess and it is hard for most people to really do that and not look away. Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, practice in the comfort of your own home just after <laughs> you finish brushing your teeth and get, you know, and then um, maybe, yeah, in the public you'll be able to do it. <laughs> but, but go ahead. Do, were, were there other suggestions you had? Um, well, breathing, you know, really breathing together is, is a great uh, is a great practice and a way of getting more connected and and um, you know it can it, there you can combine that with the eye gazing and it can be helpful to breathe audibly so that you can each hear hear one another. Um, so do you what you like maybe sit cross-legged in front of each other, you know, touching hands or something, and you just do that. You, you could, know, or together? you can do it standing as well and facing mm-hmm. one another. Yeah. Um, or you can do it in in what's called the yab yum posture, which is a kind of a classic tantric sex posture, uh, where the man would sit in lotus position or half lotus, and the woman sits astride him. If there are physical issues, you can do it on the edge of the bed. So he would have his floor, his feet on the floor, and she would she would have her legs around them. Um, also breathing while in spooning position or while if you're hugging from your partner from behind, you can also sync up your breathing that way as well. So um, one other thing I want to point out is that shared adventures of any kind, just some joint adventure is uh, deepens the bond between people or among people. So um we we encourage people to have sexual adventures <laughs> but there's you could uh take a kayak trip together a cooking class together um you know any sort of adventure anything that takes you out of your ordinary realm and that okay. that's shared is is great so what um, type of what type of um sexual ad, uh, adventure would you recommend you know trying different positions or role playing or things like that or I think you know um there that's up to the couples um and you can just get uh, do we have a checklist you can there are some checklists online where you can just go through a checklist of all kinds of of sexual activities and say yes no or maybe and and that opens up a conversation 
for the couple. So it's not, you're looking at something abstract. Not one of you is asking the other to behave a certain way or role play or try a new sex act that you may not be ready for. But in the abstract, you can, you know, open up the discussion. That's where you can decide what your sex, sexual adventure should be is through discussion. And I, I'll give a kind of a story of, of how this, this is from Partners in Passion, um, we talk about a, a couple that belonged to a very conservative religion and lived in a community that was predominantly of their co-religionists. And through talking about their fantasies and desires, it became clear that they both wanted, they both had a fantasy about having sex with strangers. And this was not something that they could do. And it, it's, it, it just was, you know, they, they were monogamous, they were committed to each other, they were not going to, do anything like this, but, but it was a fantasy for both of them. Mm-hmm. The way they solved the issue was that they would drive 20 or 30 miles away outside of their community. She would dress up. She might wear a wig. She'd change her appearance and, and sit down in a diner, and he would come up and pretend that he was a stranger, pick her up, and take her to a motel. <laughs> so they're always they're – always calling each other, you know, Jim and Carol, you know, <laughs> like, uh-huh, uh-huh. and, and well, that, you know, they was, can just, yeah. That was creative. That was very creative. Yeah. So now you also have something here you call one plus one equals three. What does that mean? That, that you, you come, you come to your relationship as a complete individual, a whole unit and, you know, a very, with a very, I hope, rich relationship with yourself and a sexual makeup as well that that's been formed throughout your life and so when you when you come together and are in a relationship with with another person you're actually creating the relationship is not one or the other of you it's it's a synergy it's it's an entity that the two of you are creating together and that encompasses your your pers- your individual personalities and selves and your your sexualities and those things are going to be different and the the places where you overlap are really wonderful and the places where you differ are things to celebrate and explore and and learn from but it's important to think of the relationship as this entity that that you're creating together and that you're investing energy in right so i i think of our relationship as something very very real almost living and breathing so whenever that living breathing entity is experiencing distress we both collaborate come together and nurture that so it it's not a um you know uh it loses the commerce of relating that can happen with people so i did this for you why don't you do this for me so it's just sort of a a, a bargaining back and forth when you see your relationship as a, an entity that you're co-creating it there's this potential for it to become exponential and in um you know surprises it it I don't know. I want to say something wonderful right now. It's going to come to me. <laughs> so. Well, no, but that, that makes sense because, mm-hmm. you know, because the two individuals are, are in, a, in a sense, separate and apart. But when the two, of, you know, when, when two people come together, they create something else. You know, the, the, it's the, the joining of the two creates the third thing. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Well, and 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 actually, that that really sort of makes me want to backtrack just a tad because uh, Patricia, you said something you know that's sort of been on the walls of temples, you know, for you know for forever, uh, to know yourself. You know, I, I think we think about you know we hear that, um, but it's sort of an abstract idea. Um, what would you say to somebody uh, to to really get them to understand what that means to know yourself, to know thyself? Um, geez, I think the the best thing that's helped me personally is the a concept of uh, it's like witness uh, consciousness. So um, in our tradition, we we call a tantric practitioner experiment and experimenter. And we, Mark and I, also like to add laboratory so that it, virtually every aspect of life you, you not only experience, but you observe your self-experience at the same time, um, observe your experience. And this is, this is really, um, you know, bringing that kind of awareness to life really is such a learning tool about, you know, a great way to gain self-knowledge. So but if you, you know, just Patricia, have in the back you, of your mind... I'm sorry, go ahead, Michael. So if you just have in the back of your mind that anything that you're doing, anything at all, is an opportunity to learn something, that, that to, to me anyway, is the path to self-knowledge because you're, that allows you to approach all of your experiences with, with curiosity, with, with a willingness to see how this little piece of whatever it is that you're doing fits into the bigger fabric of, of your existence. Um, but, so that's but where see, it starts. But you see, you two are too aware folks, okay? You've been working on this. You know, this is second nature to you. Don't you find that out there in the world, there are a lot of people who don't really know who they are yet. They are who other people want them to be. Um, you know, they're meeting other people's expectations and they really maybe haven't even figured out they don't know who they are. I mean, how often do you hear women say when the husband passes away or divorces them and the kids are no longer there, they don't even know who they are because they were somebody's mother or somebody's wife? Is, is, yeah. is that different from what you're talking about or is it really the same thing? Um, well, I mean, I think I think people. It's human nature to fall into uh, see, being being in the world the way others define you or how they react to you. I mean, it, it's a real. It goes against our culture to really take time to examine yourself and really um, understand these um, questions. Well, and I also think that I mean, there isn't. You don't arrive at self knowledge. There's no destination there. There's no, you, never, you never, ever can know yourself fully. Um, our teacher likes to say that, that yoga and tantra are about trying to do the impossible, and in some respects that's knowing yourself is, is an impossible task. But if you start with just, as I said, a little bit of awareness that I'm just going to try to observe, I'm just going to try and understand a little bit better what's going on here, what's happening in this experience, that's where you start. I, I can speak for myself, and I, I was married to someone prior to Pat Patricia, and we met when I was 20, 
21 or 22. And we were together for 11 years. And when the marriage broke up, I, my identity was shattered. You know, so, I mean, I think that we all, we all have to start somewhere and we all are never going to arrive at, at complete self-knowledge. But if we just take a few steps, you know, we can, we can start going deeper. But, and, but wouldn't you say it's important that we try to take those steps because, you know, maybe if, if we don't know who we are, if we don't know what we like, if we don't take that time to know ourselves, then don't we in a way sort of run the risk of just being who other people want us to be and never really finding personal fulfillment? Oh yeah, I mean I I think if there's if you know, if there's a purpose to this existence, it is to 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 take those steps. It is about ultimately about knowing as much as well as you can who you are. Um and that was the goal of most spiritual traditions around the world for most of human history. You know, it's even in 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 the Bible, it's you know, the the person who doesn't know himself can't know God. So we, it's there, but but it's been pretty much devalued in in modern society, and and you know in that sense we're very conservative. We want people to kind of go back to a, a more reflective and and self aware kind of way of being. Right, right, right. Well, um, I know we've covered a lot. Um, is there anything um, I haven't thought to ask you about? You think is you know, might be important to share before we say goodnight? Um, no, i just love to yeah, give there a was one, one, item, one item. Oh, Mark. Um, just Mark. one of the things that we also do to kind of reinforce the sense of reverence is that we, we have certain rituals that we engage in around our, our sexual interactions um, when we usually conclude with a bow to each other and a namaste. Now, that may feel artificial to some people, but it, we really think that doing something to create a sense of, of sacredness or specialness or however you care to define it around your erotic interactions is very, very valuable for, for anyone who's in a relationship. It's just a reminder to your, to your subconscious that this is important and it's something to value. Okay, okay. Patricia, any last words from you? Uh, n- not really, but I'd I'd love to give our URL out, out again. Sure, please go right <laughs> ahead. And if there's anything else you want to say, um, give the titles of your books again, how people can find you, if you're doing any classes. Okay, so our, our website is www.michaelsandjohnson.com. Our first book is The Essence of Tantric Sexuality. The second is uh, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment. Our third was Great Sex Made Simple. Which is a Tantra, it's our kind of beginner's Tantra book. It's in tip format, very accessible and, and easy for anyone. And our, our current title is Partners in Passion. And um, we, we don't have upcoming classes because we're, we're finishing our fifth book so, right now. Y'all so. are busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, and um, um, are you on Facebook or anything like that as well? Yeah, Facebook Tantra PM, and Twitter is Tantra PM. Yeah. 
Okay, um, and the website, michaelsandjohnson.com. I think you mentioned yeah. that. Well, I'm glad I had you back. Um, thank you for all the valuable information uh, you shared with listeners tonight. And, um, you know, keep in touch. Yeah, thanks so much yeah, for having us on so and for, for our apologies for the technical problems, which were beyond our control. But <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> it's really know. distressing. So. <laughs> That's okay. It all worked out. I know it wasn't your fault. You tried really hard to... Uh, you know, to make it all happen, and, you know, sometimes those things just happen, you know? Yep. So, um, all right, well, well, nice to meet you guys, and, um, you know, best of luck on your projects, and I'm glad you're out there uh, raising this awareness in the world so people can, you know, more people can enjoy their lives more fully. Thank Thanks. you so much. Have a great night. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now a word uh, from Joe Carson. Most people's psychic experiences are dreaming and it's thought that it's the pineal gland making this chemical that does it. Now this was the core finding, the core finding that the pineal gland makes a hallucinogen, we all hallucinate, we all go into a state of consciousness that for me is the collective unconscious. This psychic state is the collective unconscious which is that consciousness of the planet what's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Because all peoples, all races, all tribes, from the past right around the world, have myths and legends which use symbols and archetypes which are identical. Identical. Every human being experiences this state of consciousness, which is the dream mind. That symbolic, archetypal, exemplified by fairy tales, or the creation myths and legends of all the different peoples. The symbols of them are the same, and to me that is the consciousness of the earth speaking to us. Well, that was a little snippet from um, the, the DVD, um, Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Um, Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddesses Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20. You can get your own copy at dancingwithgaia.com. Well, I want to give a shout-out to a couple people. Uh, The first is Dawn uh, in Kuwait. I want to say thank you. Thank you, Dawn. I woke up yesterday morning, and um, Dawn had obviously heard my uh, my PBS-like plea. Uh, and, you know, inviting listeners to support the show, and uh, she sent in a very uh, generous donation, and uh, I want to thank you, Dawn. Thank you very much, <clears throat> and stay safe there in Kuwait, uh, and your package is in the mail. Uh, also, uh, I want to mention that uh, if uh, you're in Southern California and you're near Westlake Village, uh, if uh, you'll, you'll know where that is if you are. <laughs> uh, October 4th, I am going to be given a presentation called Founding Mothers, Unearthing Our Rich Female Legacy, Washington, D.C. and Beyond. Uh, Celeste Yarnell, uh, activist, actress, movie producer, along with singer-songwriter Jackie Clark and uh, drum facilitator Rowan Storm, we will all be sharing the stage. 
And uh, I am going to uh, talk to you about discovering the untapped feminine deity role model and ideal, often overlooked or hidden in plain sight. Um, we're going to talk about the sacred feminine uh, in public buildings, national monuments, uh, Washington, D.C., New York, uh, museums, temples, and industrial parks. Uh, we'll talk about what the Founding Fathers thought of the sacred feminine and the female archetype, and we'll discover what values and ideals the feminine consciousness offers society for a more sustainable, just, balanced an equitable future. So that is October 4th, save the date, uh, in Westlake Village, and that would will be at the Center for Spiritual Living. Yes, the Center for Spiritual Living. And, you know, I was just saying, uh, a lot of work goes into doing this show every week, year in and year out, and uh, you can show your appreciation like Dawn did uh, and support uh, the show by sending in a donation or um, help uh, keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air by buying one of my books or uh, like Dr. Myluna. Dr. Myluna just uh, put it in order for a sistrum, which is a sacred instrument of uh, the goddesses Isis, Bast, and Hathor. We actually make those. And, you know, Herodotus said it was the goddess shaking her sistrum that kept the energies of the cosmos flowing. And uh, I invite you to tune in next week as I interview Dr. Myluna Fausch uh, on the topic of the feminine voice, what it is and what it isn't. So uh, as I close tonight's show, um, I want to leave you with uh, one of my favorite quotes from Monique Wittig. And she says, there was a time when you were not a slave. Remember that. You walked alone, full of laughter. You bathed bare-bellied. You say you've lost all recollection of it. Remember. You say there were no words to describe this time. You say it does not exist. But remember. Make an effort to remember. Or failing that, invent. Well, thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in yet again. and uh, for tuning in on this special Monday night, uh, I will be back with you uh, next Wednesday, uh, same place, same time. And as I said, I'll be with Dr. Myluna Fausch on the topic of the feminine voice, what it is and what it isn't. So have a wonderful weekend. I hope you're enjoying the summer. Uh, be safe. Have fun. And uh, I love to hear from you. So please uh, keep those emails coming. And um, may Goddess embrace you in her golden wings. Good night.